When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome. I'm Samson Folk, the host of a lot of the Raptors Republic podcasting, whether you're listening on the podcast channel or watching on YouTube. Welcome. This is another episode of Outside Looking In, where we talk to people who cover teams, are fans of teams, know a lot about teams, get their opinion on the Raptors so we can try and achieve some sort of consensus. You can hear what people think about your favorite team. But in addition to that, you can learn about the league at large. 29 episodes. This is number three, I believe, with Jackson Frank. If you want the bite-sized version of this podcast, he's already done a preview of the Raptors' like upcoming season over at Liberty Ballers. In addition to Liberty Ballers, he works at Dime Up Rocks and The Analyst, writing great stuff all the time. One of my favorite people to read. The analysis is always strong. The wordplay is even stronger. Jackson, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. I appreciate the kind words, and I'm excited to talk about a, a funky, fun team in, in the Toronto Raptors. I am as kind words peeled to you as the Raptors are to pulling off of the strong corner. And so <laughs> I know you know, like, so people listen to this podcast a lot will remember you. Well, you've been on this podcast quite a few times, but especially we did a mid-series review, the 76ers and the Raptors. And I think that we agreed on a lot i ended up saying hey maybe the raptors do it in seven you know and you stuck to i think the 76ers make it in six but looking back on the raptors season and then looking forward i'm interested broad strokes what you think about this young inventive team in toronto yeah i think they're a team that felt like it constantly had to kind of re reshape itself a little bit not like in the, not in the necessarily things like they they stuck to their their principles a lot in terms of kind of what they want to do on offense and defense but you know i, I don't think most people even within i don't think most expected fred and to be an all-nba caliber player through the first 30 games i don't think i think as high as people were on scotty into the year i mean i don't think they expected him to come out of the gates and you know necessarily you know win rookie of the year you know in, in a loaded draft class uh, you know, it, it took it took some time for Pascal to work his way in. You know, he missed the first 14 games, and I think it took him till at least maybe, you know, the ninth, tenth game to really kind of at least reach that All Star kind of form. Obviously, by the end, he was playing at a deserved All NBA NBA level, which he was recognized as. But and then you had OG missing time. You had kind of you know had, you had the pressure to chew at ebbs and flows. And by the end of the season, he'd really become a different, a, a improved player than he than he was at the start. So it just felt like a team that like it never. White was able to get itself settled until, you know, late January. And then we saw that that great run where they beat a lot of playoff teams. Obviously, you know, that came with some absence, absences from key players in the Raptors and other teams. But, you know, they went 25-11, I think, over the final 36. 
16 of those wins were over teams that made the playoffs. Like I said, there's some caveats for both sides, but um, just a really, really good stretch of basketball. They were fourth in de defensive rating over that stretch. Um, you kind of saw the vision for what they wanted to do. Obviously, they're not they, they're not a great defensive rebounding team. They're not they're not going to you know if you get into the paint, you're probably going to have some level of success. Um, but what they're going to be able to do is close those gaps on the perimeter. They've got a bunch of rangy, versatile stoppers on on the on the perimeter, um, and, and they're going to create a lot of turnovers. They're going to they play such a chaotic style that they want you to kind of be baited into that chaos, right? Where you're you're scrambling and you're feeling like, okay, we only have, we have half a second to make a play here and we're probably going to make the wrong decision or the Raptors are making, making the wrong decision. So you saw kind of the vision by the end, but, but obviously by the end, the offense wasn't where it wanted to be because Fred Van Vliet was dealing with, with some injuries and that, you know, that was, that was, you know, people kind of, you could say maybe that was related to him having such a ridiculous workload on both ends to open the year. And so um, that was kind of the downside, right. As they were, they were, Van Vliet kept them afloat for so long, and then once they were comfortably, you know, navigating the waters, Van Vliet, you know, was was struggling within his life vest out of the raft. So, um, you know, the, the goal for them this year, obviously, you would hope that is Van Vliet can kind of go back to more of that complimentary role a little bit offensively, um, do a little more off-ball stuff, and be that that defensive pest that we've seen for you know half a decade now at this point. Um, but yeah, just a team that kind of was searching for its identity for a while and never quite got to see the full form of it because of the rotating cast of just caliber of players, I would say. So of the people I've had on so far, you're definitely the person who I think pays attention, the most attention to the draft. And I know that you're very familiar with Scotty's film. I know that you've seen a lot of him and you also like covered him during a playoff series. So just before we get into the comparisons and contrasting the, the Sixers and the Raptors, I just want to take a moment to ask you about Scotty Barnes, Rookie of the Year. What are you looking for heading into year two, and what progressions do you expect him to make? Yeah, so he so he's a guy that like I didn't end up doing a ton of draft work during the 2021 cycle. Like I, I watched a lot of Evan Mobley, I watched Jalen Suggs because I'm, I'm a Gonzaga alum. I, I did a breakdown Jalen Green because he was fascinating. I saw more of Scotty in like AAU stuff because that's when I was still doing a lot of draft coverage. Um, so I truthfully didn't have a great grasp on him. And I think I probably sent out some tweets that were me group thinking things that were a little lower on him. So I'll up, up to that. But what impressed me most about Scotty is like he just he played through contact so well as a rookie. And that was kind of his whole thing. Right. As a score again, the intermediate range, um, you know, and kind of getting guys leaning and, and whatnot and using that touch. I think in year two, I and one of the things that was like before even like when Scotty was more of like people considered me you know, more of a top 10 prospect and you know the guy who's now a top three four you know top two whatever you want to call him in this class uh prospect it was the passing was really really good what i think he kind of struggled to rein in a little bit was like he had he had so much creativity oh like or flex or freedom excuse me is a proper word like you know in aau even at montverde at times and in florida state he played a lot of point guard um that i think he struggled to kind of maximize some of his passes to the same degree some of the accuracy, the consistency wasn't there, but he's a really talented passer. So I think the goal would for be for him to kind of go from a talented, albeit inconsistent, to one who's consistently making a lot of high value passes, putting guys in the right spots. And he's he's in a good situation because, you know, I don't think he and Pascal are by any means a one-to-one -one comparison, but you're looking at two ball, two bigger ball handlers who like to play through contact, seek out contact, initiate contact with their shoulders and bumps and hips and things like that. 
Um, and obviously, we saw what Pascal's done as a pastor this past year, and even you know, previously. So that's the, that's the one thing. And then the other thing that people loved a lot about Scotty, which you saw parts of at times, was the defensive upside. Right, the guy who's incredibly mobile for a was he six ten, six eleven, six nine. Yeah, who knows how tall he is? Of this, he yeah. looks big. He's, yeah, he's, he's the he's not he's playing the uh, he's in the Ben Simmons Jason Tatum conundrum now where we yeah. don't know exactly how tall he is. He's just he's big and it's impressive he can move that, that well at that mm-hmm. size. Um, but you, you saw like just the way he was able to you know even that that uh, Philly series you saw the way he was able to pressure James Harden at times in the, in the full court. Um, you know other guys as well. Obviously that that led him to be susceptible to some breakdowns. You know just being blown by. It. I mean that's just the na- I mean that's kind of the nature of things. But um, you saw that would be very impressive. Just the kind of the scope of on-ball stuff, things you could do. But I think what made Scotty really interesting was kind of the off-ball defense at times as a as a prospect. And I, I would have to go back and watch it more in depth, but just kind of pulling from my my memory of, you know, a couple of years at this point. But that felt also inconsistent last year. I think there were months and stretches where you saw him figuring it out. And I definitely think he was better by May or, or April, whenever the season ended uh, for him than he was in October. But, you know, like going back through some notes, there was a lot of like, oh, like he misread this play. Maybe he botched an X out. He was supposed to help off the strong side here because you know, that's one of the things the Raptors do a lot, especially against poor shooters in the corners. Cough, cough, and see Um, But like he would just mess up an X out. He would he would fail to rotate as a low man at times. But then you saw like some ridiculous ground coverage. So, you know, maybe like there was an errant bounce pass in the middle of the lane to a roller and Scotty was in the corner and all of a sudden he was in the paint and he, he got a steal, things like that. So um that's natural like i mean it's just like you it's cliche but you can never overstate like how hard it is for rookies to assimilate to the speed and the complexities of of nba offenses and how to navigate it defensively so um i don't like hold it as a a mark against scotty it's like it's 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 i i use it as a like a a plus when guys like evan mobley come in or you know even kate cunningham and who i thought was really good defensively he had his own struggles too um, so I think Scotty overall was fine defensively, but but I think you want him to be be squarely, you know, by this time next year, you want him to be talking about squarely, Scotty squarely as a positive passer and off ball defender, I think. And then I think you're looking at a guy who's, you know, right in that at least at least all star buzz. I don't know exactly. I mean, it's just there's so many guys in the given you that can be all star caliber it just depends on injuries and shooting variants and, and things like that. Um, so at least an all-star buzz. I think that's kind of the path for him, but also like just building upon his second half scoring rep numbers, right? I think he was about, he averaged about three or four more points a game post all-star break. Uh, the efficiency was three or four points better in terms of true shooting, I believe. Um, now I do think the collective at league true shooting kind of like steadily rose the entire year as the free NBA, throws went up too, as yeah. the NBA rules became more lax after those first couple of weeks when Trey Young and James Harden couldn't, couldn't buy a call and <laughs> they were letting hand checks happen. Like we were back in the nineties again and, and all that. Um, maybe, but maybe I got those wrong. I can't remember if the hand checks were allowed or not allowed back, back when MJ was in his prime. So I apologize if there's a historian listening to this and I boxed it, but the point being is like, he got better as a scorer. And I'm curious to see, like, could could he be a, let's say, let's say like last year, the second half was like, it was 17 or whatever on plus two and a half true shooting. Can he be, can he be 19 on plus three and a half this year for an entire year? And that would be a notable bump from rookie year. So those are kind of the three things I'm looking for from him this year. And I, I think what's remarkable at Scotty is his rate of improvement just throughout mm-hmm. last year. And, you know, just how much better he got between, uh, between, Florida State and and Toronto reminds me of Tyrese Halliburton in that sense, um, who both are. It's I don't think it's coincidence that those 
two there are two players that everyone seems to gravitate toward and, and really enjoy spending time with and watching. So um, I, I'm not really anything out for Scotty, but those are the kind of the areas that I'm I'm highlighting for him, and I I expect him to be better in, in those realms. And you know, not like not like oh you need to be better, but I just just his nature I expect him to be better, and so I, I think he will be. You uh you brought up the off ball defense. You brought up the passing. Two things. The passing was good all year for sure. And especially since he got to play around in transition, the the passing that leg behind was half court stuff where Scotty, just because of Fred, Gary, Pascal, OG, had a lot of one-on-one matchups. And people wouldn't send the extra help. They'd just be like, you know, baseball savant, dog in them, 100th percentile, like, <laughs> go get it. And on top of that, he struggled with doubles and stuff like that. So I'm interested to see how he starts making half-court decisions as a passer, as a manipulator and stuff like that. And the off-ball defense, you cited at the start of the podcast that that run they had a fourth, they were ranked fourth in defensive rating. During that run, I I observed, now if you go to like EPM, it'll correlate with that, but I observed that Scotty was a positive as an off-ball decision-maker, ground coverage, all that kind of stuff. I, I love your answer on Scotty. We're on a lot of the same points. Now we'll see if we have the same points for the 76ers. I'm going to lay out. Follow, I would just follow up the, the half court is a passing is a very good distinct, distinction there. I think that's kind of where I sure. should have articulated. But yeah, obviously you would know more about the, the off ball defense. He's a guy that I like. I've been doing a lot of deep dives on these rookies, you know, from Evan Mobley to Quentin Grimes and, and whatnot. And Scott is a guy that's on my list to, to go back, circle back on again. Obviously, I, you know, I reviewed my notes a little bit before watching this, but he's a guy that I want to get an even better feel for because I think he just had such a ridiculously fascinating rookie year. But yeah, I think the half court thing is an important distinction for sure. Well, you want to get in before he wins MVP, right? No. Um, yeah. No. Yeah. I want to. I want to. Uh, I want to get some. Uh, get, get get some future bets in there. Yeah. Exactly. So, but I was going to say is that. I'm going to try and get on the same page or see if we're on the same page. I'm going to do the concise sell for the 76ers as the team that wins the championship this year. And you tell me if any of the ingredients are missing or if you think they aren't ingredients. And so I think the 76ers are my, that's the team I would put the most money on if I were a betting man uh, to win the championship. And I think fundamentally it is Joel Embiid, is a world-ending defender. We didn't see it because of injury, because of breaking down against the Raptors, especially the back end of that series. But Joel Embiid closes off way more of the court than most players are able to. The James Harden renaissance is real. It not It's not completely back to where he was, but it's definitely going to be better than um, what we saw towards the in, in the playoffs, I would say. Tyrese Maxey is still the Tasmanian devil that completely rips every gap to shreds, finishes everything at the rim, hits every pull-up three, hits every catch-and-shoot three, is just like this insane player that they got outside of the lottery. Unbelievable. And the collection of like wingy defenders, Tobias Harris, still being not a max player probably, but pretty damn good. I just see a team that will just win a lot of games because James Harden and Joel Embiid are going to break every defense because of course they will. And then they're going to defend well enough. Am I missing anything? No, I don't. I think, I mean, like I, I have the Sixers as one of the three best teams in the East entering the year. Um, I think the point about the, the, the delineation of, you know, Houston Harden versus pre-injury Harden is important. Like I think 
like you saw how good he was, you know, in 2021 as kind of that, that point guard letting Kyrie and KD do their thing as incredible play finishers. Um, obviously they create for themselves to agree, but a lot of it was, all right, we're going to run a bunch of pin downs and, and flex screens and stuff and just like let the all world shooters receive passes from an all world passer. Um, I think that's all they really, and the way I've tried to articulate it is like Harden, Harden could take a step back as a scorer in that role because he had two, you know, alpha scorers, right. Or like, or bona fide, you know, one, a scores. Um, and so that's why his numbers, what they were as a scorer. Last year with the Sixers, they needed him to be a little more than that, right? Like he, he couldn't do it post injury. Like he he had the the occasional explosion, you know, a few games in the regular season with the Sixers, the game four against Miami in the second round. Um, you know, I think game was a game six against Toronto when he was really, really good. Um, if I recall, he came out really aggressive and kind of set the tone for that game. Um, so he, like you saw it at times, but he just couldn't channel it on a consistent basis, and the Sixers didn't have that that qualified like second score, you know, in the second round and beyond against a really good team like Miami that, you know, was a great defense and, you know, was, you know, as close as could be to, to making the finals last year. So, um, yeah, I think it's just about him being able, be, being able to get back there. But I mean, he and Embiid are a great floor raising duo. They're all like, I'm not saying they're not a ceiling raising duo, but like you get them for 70 games a year, you know, I think that's a, you're going to win a lot of games. Uh, I think one of their biggest issues last year was a lack of, wing depth defensively and kind of versatility switching across positions. Um, we know PJ Tucker can kind of guard one through four and a half. You don't want him guarding, you know, the fives and the ones a ton, but like you saw what he can do to Trey Young. You saw what he can do to Harden at times. Like this, this is clearly a the, very, uh, really versatile. The in a pinch caveat, heavy lifting. Anytime you do the one through five, you just toss it in a pinch, you know, in a pinch guard. Yeah. Well, I think, right. Well, I think just the way I would expand on that is you, you feel okay with, like you're not you're not scrambling to get out of Peter Tucker out of guarding a one right or a four or five mm-hmm. at the time right whereas you know you throw Tyrese Maxey on a five or you throw a I don't know like a, a Drummond on a one I'm not saying I'm not not saying I'm not just like then you're like hey let's let's can we are we blitzing are we are we trying to like do kind of like a an interesting on ball switch without giving up an advantage so with Tucker you feel fine with situations you know assuming he's going to guide them into another switch that is a little more comfortable um Daniel House I thought was really really solid last year with with Utah um I what I've tried to bake into my analysis as of late is veterans on bad teams just tend to have more pop when they play for good teams we saw with Blake Griffin a couple years ago we might see with John Wall this next year um fingers crossed to do for Wall but I think we saw with Daniel House last year and they're only going to ask him to play, I don't know, 18 minutes, maybe like, I think, you know, kind of what Danny Green was doing last year. Um, Green had a lot of injury troubles. Obviously they needed Danny more in the playoffs before he went down. Um, but like they were playing 18, 25 minutes a lot during the regular season, just to preserve him. And now you've got pretty solid wing depth with, you know, guys who can guard the three um, and play the three a little bit. So, and I, I think like, I think that'll, that'll help. I, I really like what we saw from Tobias over the last two months of the year. Um, I always talk about it, but that that game they got destroyed on national television against the Nets. There, that was the silver line that Tobias shot well from three, and that was the beginning of him figuring out his new role, you know, with Harden in the fold. So um, we saw how good he was, you know, at times in that that Toronto series and even that Miami series as an on-ball stopper. And I think what helps now is last year the issue was like once Toronto man are like, oh, he just can't really navigate screens that well because he's a strong six eight guy. Most players that size can't would have set those screens. Now it's like, you know, the, the Sixers can bring a, a Daniel House, a P.J. Tucker, 
Uh, you know, they can bring Embiid into it at times as well. Uh, a Paul Reed, it seems like he might be the backup center, is obviously a pretty, you know, impressive switchable guy. Um, you know, Matisse Thiel is probably going to have a role. Dan, Anthony Melton, I've even mentioned, like, there's a lot more, you can feel a lot more comfortable if Tobias is taking off a matchup that it's not super exploitable. Whereas last year it was like Timmy Butler and Pascal Siakam were just going to completely destroy kind of whoever they were getting off of that screen once Tobias was on someone else. So I think that helps a lot. But yeah, I totally agree with where you're at. I think Maxi, I liked, I really liked the way Maxi developed defensively last year. Um, so those things to work on, and just there's just the nature of him being six two. He's going to be picked on on switches um, at times. But uh, I'm really excited for him. Like even if the the jumper, the three point shot regresses a little bit, I think you're going to see him even more comfortable with that mid range pull up, which is kind of an area that I know Sam Cassell has identified as something he's working on that they've they've worked together this summer. Um, Noah Levick wrote a cool article at NBC Port Philadelphia a couple months ago about kind of the work that Cassell is doing with Maxi. So um, people are more interested in that. Just, I'm sure you can find it just by searching all those buzzwords, Maxi, Cassell, Noel Levick, <laughs> it'll come up. But um, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Obviously, like it was, people are always going to be like, oh, like, I don't know about Doc. Like, and I think that's reasonable. But like, I thought Doc was like completely fine last year in the playoffs. Like, obviously, him starting DeAndre Jordan was, was a bad decision. Like, I, I, they, DeAndre Jordan's past past his prime. The way he kind of handled some of the things with the reporters, wanting them like asking about Paul Reed. Obviously, that was something that was probably frustrating for them, and I, I didn't love the way Doc handled that, um, kind of his indignation toward it. Um, but I thought he was fine. Like we, we, I think we talked last year when we did our mid-season, like, mid-season check-in, like that he was coaching a pretty good series against mm-hmm. Toronto. Um, I thought he did some solid things against Miami. Now, if you want to say the way that Philadelphia ended that that series, kind of with two lifeless losses, yeah, you could. That I'm sure, like to an extent, you can say that maybe Doc should have had them more prepared. But I thought last year, especially like he was fine, especially compared to the year before where it was like, why are you playing Dwight Howard? Why is Maxie not getting many minutes in the second round? Why is Shake Milton playing key fourth quarter minutes against Atlanta? Those are the things you point at. But last year I thought he was fine. So like, I think this team was talented enough, like and cohesive enough to be a really good team. And, and maybe Doc holds them back from being anything more than an Eastern Conference finals team. But like, I mean, if you're one of the four final teams in a given year, you're really, really, really good. And given the Sixers will be going on 22 years without an Eastern Conference Finals appearance, like, I, like of course everyone Embiid is good enough to lead a title team, but like I don't think you know as long as they don't lose like 4-0 in embarrassing fashion to some team, I, I think they'll you would take that. And I, I feel like Doc is like I, I don't think Doc is some top 10 head coach, but I think this roster is good enough, and he, we we saw enough from him last year, even with some of his faults, that like he can do enough for them to like make it as as far as they are capable of on, on the floor with the talent they have. You and I, two people covered the series, two people I know that did not lean into the toxicity that came along with that series because there was a really great players got injured in that series. That is going to make fan bases feel a certain type of way, both sides. There's room for a, a rivalry here. And while the the 76ers, I think, consensus would be considered, as you said, like in, in that top three tier. And the Raptors would need developments to make people think about them jumping into the contender tier on a national opinion scale or international opinion scale. They're probably currently in a tier lower as far as consensus. There's There's opportunity for a rivalry here. Do you expect it to be fun, uninteresting, 
or just like, oh my God, this is intense and I'm uncomfortable about it as far as this season goes? Uh, I, I, I think these teams kind of have such like contrasting styles in a lot of ways that like, at least on the court, I find their games really fun. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, you know, at least as it pertains to like fan bases, I, I try to like kind of just stay away from all, all of that stuff for the most part, you know, as someone who covers a team, it's not really my, my job to, you know, regulate fan behavior or even, you know, like maybe I'll pass judgment privately, but I, I don't ever really want to <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, I think we, I think we're beyond the point of like peacemaking among the fan bases. Just we're, you know, we're going on year four, you know, the, the Kawhi thing, Kawhi shot, of course, and it was a great series and a team that, and I think what stung even more for Sixers fans or Sixers people was like that team was really good and it immediately got stripped down uh, and it lost and it lost in, it was, it played neck and neck for 47 or for 335 and 59 seconds with the eventual NBA champs. That was some quick math. Geez. Um, but, uh, and so that kind of stung for them, but I, I'm really excited. I think like, I think, you know, the, the whole like Pascal, Joel thing, like they like it's everything that we see, they're super close and, you know, it's unfortunate that, that injury happened and, you know, you can make what you want of it, but clearly I don't think like Pascal and Joel are like, doesn't seem like they're harboring any resentment for each other. Um, at least, you know, obviously Joel will be the one that you would probably, you know, be the one more frustrated, but it seems like, I think they, they I don't know if they talk. I, they, they, I like, yeah. They, well, they squash. Well, they're close. Yeah. They always, yeah. Close. Yeah. We saw they're countrymen post injury that like, it seemed like they're totally fine, which is not surprising. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think a lot of people talk, like people want to make more of what happens on a field, a court, a diamond, uh, than, than it is it's just like, I mean, it, you know, it's just the way that people competitive that, you know, that you, you say things, you do things, you look a certain way and then you really like, you get off the field or whatever it is. And you're generally going to be like, if you're close before that, you're going to be close after that, as long as it's not the most egregious occurrence ever. So, um, I'm excited. I, like, I, I think this would be a fun rivalry. It feels like the Sixers are like one really good Knicks run away from having a rivalry with every team in this conference or any division. <laughs> I mean, the Celtics, Sixers, obviously a longstanding thing. The Nets and Sixers is a is a thing now, of course. After that trade, um, the Raptors Sixers is is bubbling. It's it's you know it's definitely kind of a rivalry, but it's got the potential to really take off if they're kind of vying for you know similar positioning that they were kind of last year. What were you saying? The uh, I think we we're just talking about the rivalry of like kind of the rivalry, rivalry with rivalry. three, uh, all four, oh, three, three of them at least. And the, the Raptors can certainly become even more, uh, you know, it could heighten a lot of this next year if, if things. Yes. Away. Especially, especially like I think all, all, all we're away from is we need like we need Scotty and Maxi to be vying for like that last All Star spot in the next couple of years, and then we'll really be getting into the, the with the. Weeks the of- with the like doomed teammates during the skills challenge background too, the hug and everything. There we go. Yeah. Um, okay. Oh, I so for- I forgot about the travesty that was their, their yeah, skills yeah, competition yeah. appearance. The, it's like the two, the two Maxi couldn't hit a jump shot despite being the greatest <laughs> jump shooter alive last year. And Scotty, despite completely subsisting on just like insane bullshit <laughs> yeah. flip shots, couldn't make one at the rim. That was their, that was their aggression to the mean. It didn't, it didn't count. Yeah. 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 They're pretty good. That's a good <laughs> yeah. place to, well, it's a good and bad place to have it. Okay. The 76ers and the Raptors, you touched on it briefly when you said these teams are so different that their matchups are awesome because the Raptors start behind the eight ball of just being so undersized with Embiid that all the machinations of trying to like catch up 
look awesome defensively, especially when it works. Then you're like, wow, something's happening here. And then for Philadelphia fans, you're like, just make the read, probably. And so I, I'm curious if you see any similarities between these teams. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. Maybe this is a broad one. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm getting more limber than I'm I'm capable of. I'm gonna pull a hamstring here, but I think I think the the for me, the kind of the thing that takes both of these teams to you kind of a level that they aspire to is kind of that wing depth in different ways, right? Like this, the, the Raptors have all this, this wing depth and they can guard a bunch of different positions, cover ground and make stuff happen on both ends. And a lot of their wing depth is kind of spearheading things, right? You know, whether it's a, if you want to call Scotty wing, Pascal, wing, OG, uh, precious can move and play like a wing on both ends. Um, versus where the Sixers, you know, kind of their, the, the way that they vaulted themselves, you know, at least as we see it into that top tier, was by adding a bunch of guys who can do wing things, right? Uh, Daniel House can do, you know, he's a spot up, spot up three guy, can attack some closeouts, make some passes, really, you know, guard two through four. Um, PJ Tucker, we know, you know, he's, he's a wing. D'Anthony Melton is only 6'2", but has a ridiculous wingspan. He can guard a lot of wings and is a, is a spot up shooter, you know, can shoot off movement. It's kind of an off-ball wing might. So that's, may, like I said, maybe getting a little too limber with things, but that's kind of what I see, right, is that the Raptors are going to go really far this year. It's going to be because maybe Scotty takes a leap. Pascal plays like an All-NBA guy again. We see OG taking another leap in his skill development offensively. Um, yeah. Sixers are going to go as far as they need to. Obviously, their best players are going to lead them. But last year, we saw kind of a lack of versatility defensively and kind of maybe release valves offensively at times and, and shrewd decision makers around and beating hard and hold them back. And this year, if, they, if those guys play up to their level as complementary players, it, it could kind of help take them over the top now. You know, Harden has to play better, and Beat has to play better than obviously. You know, Beat has the caveat of a couple injuries, but um, but that's kind of where I see some similarities, even if it's a very weird parallel. So, before I ask you the last question between these two teams, I do. I just want to ask you about Pascal and how you're gauging him because you do national work. You you write about a lot of teams, and you were somebody who I think when a lot of people mm-hmm. were kind of pushing off okay, Pascal has, he's plateaued, he's regressed, that you were, in addition to people like myself saying, I see something here, there's still room for growth. This is a player who's being underrated. All NBA season soon come, there it was. Do you expect progression from this point? Um, him to be static, regression? Like, what? what is your vision of Pascal's year next season? Yeah, I think, well, and what was so was so weird about that narrative to me is it was used as like an indictment on him, despite him being an all-NBA player and someone who was a 2A, 2B on a title team, like about, like about, like. Yeah, but no bag. Yeah, yeah, it was just a, it was just, a, it was, they were acting like he was like a top 80 player and got, like, I mean, he contributed to winning at the, literally the highest level in the star, in the star role. Um, I don't know how much more I expect of him to get better, like. I wouldn't be surprised, but like, you know, he is, he is 28 or 29 next year, 27 to 29. It's kind of that range where you peak, you know, we're kind of seeing with Embiid right now, maybe Embiid gets even better and he proves you wrong, but like, I mean, he's already, you know, has a claim to the top, top player in the world if you want to make it. Um, and so I don't know, like if I would bang him and get him better, but like, I'm not using that as a slide. I mean, he's, I have him in kind of that top 15 ish range. I think he was a well-deserved all NBA player last year. Uh, you saw him progress as a playmaker last year. Um, 
and I think you're seeing him get more and more comfortable as an off the dribble shooter. I think that would be kind of, I think you would see those would be kind of the two just, I wouldn't say leaps because leaps kind of quantify something large generally or yeah. describe. I would say like improvements. Those would be the two where just minor areas that could maybe like, I'm not saying it would happen. I'm not saying I would make this case, but the the kind of the the argument or the path we're in would kind of creep into that top 10-ish status, right? Would be, can he become even better as a playmaker on, on the move? How much more comfortable and effective does he get, you know, off the dribble? Because that was kind of the, the big area, right? That, you know, after the, the 2019 series, Embiid sagged off of him and he had no idea how to, how to score from, you know, as a dribbler, you know, after, after dribbling, excuse me. And that was kind of what helped him become an all-star in All-NBA for the following season. And we saw him really kind of expand on that this past year when he when he became, you know, he was an All-NBA player for the second time. Um, so those would be kind of the two areas uh, for me, maybe a little more defensive, just, I don't know about consistency, but just like, just turning up a dial a little bit, just kind of tapping into kind of maybe more of the all defensive caliber stuff we saw before his offensive role expanded, um, which is a really tough thing to ask for, but that would be kind of the three areas, just the passing, the off shooting, and maybe a little more, you know, the, the elite defense versus the really, really good defense. Maybe I'm underselling defense, but that's kind of how I view it. I, I think it's fair to say, like, turn the dial up because Pascal definitely had stretches and games where you're like, holy hell, this is the dude. But you could also see this is a guy who carried out. Well, he was like a helio creator for a decent portion of the season. Fred was injured. Gary couldn't make shots. They were getting zone every game like OG had a broken finger. It was impossible. And he had so much of the possession. So there were some games where he like you could tell. Pascal, somebody was driving near him, and that dig down was kind of like a step. But anyway, the small thing that Pascal can do that I think will help a lot is something that he hasn't been able to do for a decent stretch of time, but it's above the break threes. And not even off the dribble, just if the ball swings to him, it can't stick. Like, hit that jumper, because he didn't really hit. He was great from the corners last season but he wasn't really hitting the above the break stuff at a high enough volume or percentage. And if that happens, that immediately just that changes the dimension of how teams have to guard him there and also changes like the efficiency on when it's like side top side and it like pops out to him above the break. That's that's basically the only thing. Okay. That's the Pascal conversation. Last one. You you read my article from this morning. And talking about like the Raptors defense, innovation, all that kind of stuff. And like, how, how does a team improve? Where does it go? And not from a player improvement perspective, but because I know you know quite a bit about schematics in the NBA, play styles, all this kind of stuff. When you watch the Raptors, is there any low hanging fruit? Is there any schematic changes that you would wish for? When you see that team, is there anything that pops to you as like, they could do this and they're not? Oh, man. That's, that's a, yeah, that's a tough question. <laughs> it's, it's tough too because because I, I, I think I think the Raptors are so interesting because depending on who you ask and how they view the definition of versatile, you could say they are they are versatile, and you could also say they aren't. Like just just because like because the lack of like a they don't they can't go big on the inside right they're they're huge on the perimeter with you know they can throw out the Scotty Pascal OG Gary. Quartet out there, and then Fred, who plays like he's six four, despite being five eleven, six foot, like that huge. But like the Precious is not big. Kem Birch is not like a menacing guy, and he has his own issues on on offense that kind of hurt you. And and you know, uh, Christian Coloco was a rookie, and I don't like you don't want to really bank on a rookie, a second round rookie at that changing like 
how you can play. So it's tough for me to say, like, I just, nothing really comes, like, I feel like I'd have to go watch like eight Raptors games from different opponents and different offenses and really get a better feel for it. But like, I don't, I, can, I think, can I, can I suggest something and, and yeah, I'll bounce it off you. So a really insane uh, stat is that Pascal, as far as like points per possession allowed in drop, 97th percentile. Now, this isn't high volume, but Precious, I thought, was good in drop. In fact, I thought Precious was great in drop. And one thing I'd like to see the Raptors do is more of a change of pace, not when Ken Birch is on the floor, but with Pascal and Precious in particular. And who and Scotty, that could Scotty had games last year where he had like just especially against the Knicks, it was in early December, like, what the hell? This guy's a drop menace. And I'd like to see them go to it a little bit more often, just to yeah. throw a wrench at other teams. Yeah, I think, yeah, broadly, my my suggestion would have been just to like be a little less frenetic, like like Tone that, it down. That would be, just because like you like obviously they were they were great down the stretch of of the regular season defensively, like I mentioned, fourth over the last thirty six games in defensive rating, but there were definitely stretches even when a lot of their guys were healthy and, and playing well, where you saw like how like how that can cause breakdowns and stuff, and I. So I, de- I de- definitely agree that like I think it's because you have like you have good screen navigators like Fred is really good at that OG when he's you know at his best is just pretty damn good at that especially for his size and length out there um, like I, it, it, obviously Pascal if he's on driving you talking about as the big man but like I even think Pascal especially for his size is like pretty solid around screen I think that's always the important caveat like I think I talked about it on another podcast recently but I remember a couple years ago someone asked Giannis about navigating screens because like you kind of struggle with that and you like. And the most, uh, you know, in the most polite way he could, he was kind of like, bro, I'm seven feet tall. I think I do pretty well for seven <laughs> footer. And like, I, like, I think it was Eric Nem uh, who does a lot of great work covering the Bucks for the athletic. And and they have a great relationship as far as I know, you know, reporter to athlete. But he just explained it really well. And so now I was trying to think about that, right? That like, like yeah, these guys, they like, yeah, maybe I should be kinder to Giannis navigating the screen because he's seven feet tall versus, you know, praising, a, you know, a, I don't even like a Fred, Fred obviously, who, you know, is, is great at yeah. that. Um, or even a Herb Jones, Mikel. There's a lot more avenues around the screen. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, just, it's yeah. hard to be. It's hard to be flexible. That that that. that. I wouldn't know. You know, I'm I'm standing like six foot six one, but you you, um, you know you dip the shoulder to try and create the angle, yeah, and I'm, you're just I'm, bowling a dude over. I'm great getting over screens and, and pick up. I mean, I, <laughs> don't ask me to, to continue defending space after that, but I can I can get over the top of it for sure. But yeah, I think that would be the one thing is just a little more like like don't make everything about these like wild x outs and like digging every time like just. Just play like a nice little drop. Get your guy at the point of attack. Like let's let's have, let's say we're having Fred and Pascal, you know, guarding a one four one five pick and roll. Let them do their thing, and then have OG like force it toward OG at the nail. OG is a really good nail defender as well with his length and his strong hands and his ability to kind of toggle between you know ball handler and his own assignment off the ball. Um, just do more of that, and you can you can get like you have to if like for whatever reason like the the dig kind of like like pulls. OG in and he has to X out. That's fine. Like you just, you just looked at the Raptors are really good at that. Those X outs. So, um, so like you, you're, they're pretty comfortable guard having their, their perimeter guys guard a bunch of different assignments. So yeah, I like that suggestion of drop my, yeah, my only thing would have been just, you know, a little more traditional uh, approach. And I think drop is a great way go, to go about it just because, you know, switching, you just, you take your big man out of, like, it's hard to be a switch all defense a lot of the time. Like, and that's, that's part of what makes a guy like Bam Adebayo so great is like, you know, you, you think, oh yeah, let's take our like we're gonna take our big man out of the out of the paint. Like, okay, let's try by him. Bam's like, well, you're not gonna do that, and also you're not gonna pass because I'm gonna 
put my arms out, put them up and like all these different things. And you're like, geez, where do I go? So yeah, I think the switching at time was an issue um, as it is for any team a lot that, you know, that switches a lot and doesn't have the interior presence to maybe like back them up if they get beat. So yeah, I like that idea a lot for sure. And it was a more specific version of what I would have suggested if I had a better answer than yeah. my shrugging the shoulders. <laughs> well, here's, here's one suggestion that I'm sure you'll be very good at. Since we're at the end of the podcast, you can suggest to people where they should keep up with you, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Jack Frank underscore JJF. Truthfully, uh, during the offseason, these last couple of months or months or so, I've been pretty dormant in terms of posting much on there, but I'm um, still sharing my work when I write it. I'll be back uh, tweeting my head off once the NBA season starts. Um, you can find my work at Dime Uproxx, the analyst in Liberty Ballers. Um, I just wrote a piece, uh, kind of doing a little breakdown of the, my thoughts on the Raptor season last year and entering this year, we're doing kind of an Eastern Conference breakdown over there as a collective writing staff. Um, so if you're interested in more in-depth thoughts there, you can do that. Uh, Diamond Perox, the analyst, just general NBA work, trying to have something on Scotty before the season starts. I don't know what the angle exactly will be, but I do want to write about him. I've written about a bunch of these rookies and I've neglected him and Jalen Green among the kind of the high, I've written about Franz yet, but I wrote about Franz during the regular season. So. Uh, I feel like I met my quota there. So trying to fit in Scott Angelon as well amid this incredible draft class. It's you named you like, oh, I haven't done these guys. Scotty, Jalen, and Franz are like insanely fun, all of them. Like I'm sure you'll you'll enjoy the hell out of it when you do it. But um listeners, uh it'll be linked his piece on the Raptors. Um one of the few people who uh not from Toronto, not covering the Raptors, but you read something of theirs concerning the Raptors, you're like, oh, this guy could just be like a Raptors writer. He's paying that much attention. And if I can co-sign, Jackson covers the league at large. His written work is phenomenal. If you just want to follow him on Twitter, um, he has a keen sniffer for really fun plays and kind of like highlighting them. So if you're just looking to kind of, I don't know, take in basketball content via highlights, the Jackson Frank Twitter account is actually a pretty great spot. So yeah, all things Jackson Frank, tune in. Jackson, thank you so much for coming on, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I, I, you open with kind words and you close. So I'll thank you. Thank you again for them. That's the recipe, dude. Uh, listener, thanks for tuning in. If you're on YouTube, like the video. That helps, I hear. If you're on the podcast channel, uh, peace out. We'll see you. Thanks for tuning in and uh, goodbye. <laughs>